Good morning. My name is Wilson. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, if you've been with us the past few weeks, we're doing the short summer series where we're looking at this theme in scripture where God uh, communes with people over meals. It happens cover to cover in the Bible. It's this, uh, it's this interesting thing. And so the first week, uh, Keith brought us through looking at some of the feasts in the Old Testament. And then we looked at uh, Jesus's meal with Zacchaeus. And then last week, we turned and looked for, um, for one week at this table, this meal that we eat every week. Uh, and today, we look forward to the future. And when God wants to depict the great end of all history, where everything's headed, if you've got this theme in mind of meals, then it's no surprise that at the very end, when God's trying to describe what will happen, there's some language for it, it's no surprise that the language is going to be the language of a meal. So 700 years before Jesus arrived, the people of God were already expecting that the very end, the culmination of all things, was going to be a meal. That's what we read in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. He'll swallow up death and will wipe away tears from every eye. And then in the very last pages of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we read a very similar thing. Hallelujah, the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, what is with the terrifying gospel passage that we read, right? Um, I don't know about you guys, but all of a sudden I'm uh, getting a little worried about this last feast that com that's coming. The first two really made it sound great, um, but this one stokes a lot of, uh, this one kind of stokes a lot of fear. Like, it's obviously talking about that last banquet, but why does, why does Jesus tell this parable? Why does he tell us this, tell it this way? Um, Lindy was doing a search for, she's not here, so it's a little unfair, but she was, uh, she was doing a search for the artwork for the cover this week and came across a, a blog that called this the worst parable. Um, so what's going on in here? Why does Jesus do this? Why is, he, why is there a warning blaring over this great feast in this parable? Well, it's because at, at any cost, Jesus does not want us to miss out. At any cost, Jesus does not want us to miss out on this feast. There will come a day when history will end, not with a bang and not with a whimper, but with a fresh beginning, world without end, a feast of joy and laughter. There will come a day when the great questions will have an answer, where joy will swallow up grief. It's hard to even begin to imagine. There is some joy, there is some healing that will finally silence the evil of a mass shooting or the death of somebody you love or all sorts of things that never make a headline and maybe even never make a conversation. That restless angst and search for happiness that is within us all. There will come a day when there will be a feast of joy and laughter. There will come a day when death is swallowed up in victory, a feast day. And Jesus would by no means have us miss out. He will woo you. He'll warn you with harsh words. He will lay down his life. He'll give his own life for this. And he did. What I really want to show today, and I do want to look at this parable today. What I really want to show is that the resounding theme of this parable, believe it or not, 
is joy. And the reason that this parable stinks is because everybody in it, well, not everybody, but, but time and time again, people in the story reject eternal joy. And so in light of all that, the question that I want to ask today, that tension that's in this parable, um, question I want to ask soberly, but very hopefully, is this. How do we participate? How do we participate in the great wedding feast of joy? First thing we're going to see is that we accept the wedding invitation. Simple enough, right? How do we participate in the feast? We accept the invitation. Um, Now look, uh, part of understanding this parable well involves catching some very important details. So I want you to put yourself in this scene, right? Imagine maybe you're one of the servants of the king, okay? Um, Verse two, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. All right, so you're there. It's a wedding feast. You know the hustle and bustle of a wedding. If you've ever helped put one on, uh, the lights are going up. There's this incredible smell that's wafting from the kitchen. Everybody's running to and fro. There's this buzz of anticipation that's about to happen. And then the order is sent out for the servants to go invite everybody that the feast has begun, right? And anybody, you know, you guys have been to weddings. You've helped put them on. Uh, You know that the invite is not sent the day of. Those invites went out months before, and everybody's already RSVP'd. This is just the, hey, the food's ready. Like, let's, let's get going. Um, and remember, this is the wedding feast for a king's son. This is not a guy inviting his friends over to dinner. This is a major event. And so to be invited to this is to be an incredible guest of honor. There's only one answer to this invitation, and it's yes. There's nothing more important than going to the wedding feast of a king's son. Which is why what happens next is so shocking. The guests of honor reject the invitation. Verse three, they would not come. Literally, they didn't want to come. They weren't wanting to come. They just didn't want to come. So just stop and uh, stop for a second and just imagine. If you have prepared a wedding feast for your child and you send out the word to everybody that it is ready and everyone all, all of a sudden decided that they, they're in town and everything and decided that they didn't want to come, right? It's unimaginable. I I just went back to work. I just did something else, you know, whatever. That would be incredibly painful. And it would also be hard not to read it as a personal insult. Like really heading, like you're going to work today on a Saturday or whatever. You're going to look at your field. It's personal. It says, I don't care about you. I do not care about your family. I do not care about your son. But what happens next is equally shocking. The king Kings would not do this, sends out a second invite in verse four. And this one, it's pleading. Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Please come to the wedding feast. God is depicted here as he is so many times in scripture, stooping to a level of vulnerability that most of us, myself included, try very hard to avoid getting in. No one likes to look like a fool or to be embarrassed. And God is okay with looking weak, even pathetic, right? Um, Most graphically in Jesus. And he's okay, why? So that people have every chance possible to join this feast. He'll take the shame, he'll bear it if you'll just come. And yet they reject him again and even kill his servants. And at this point, the parable is getting beyond what anyone's ever experienced in real life before. And we start to notice that this parable is just telling history, right? 
This is the story of what Israel has done, and especially what the generation of Israel of Jesus' day is doing, right? They rejected God's son when he was right there in front of them. They rejected his servants all throughout history, the prophets, right? And this parable tells us that the king got angry and burned their city. It's like this shocking moment. Well, in AD 70, Jerusalem was taken over by Rome, and the temple was destroyed and has never been rebuilt in that form. Jesus has warned about that multiple times in the gospel, and it happens. And that rejection is awful, but it opens the door for God's next amazing move and what he's going to do. He sends out the invitation everywhere. All of a sudden, it's not just the guests of honor that are invited. It is whoever. I'll invite the entire world. And again, we see this in the gospels. It's all the outcasts that are sitting with Jesus around his table all throughout the Gospels. It's the blind, it's the disabled, it's the sinners, the prostitutes, the swindlers. Those are the folks that end up with Jesus. That and also people like Joseph of Arimathea, a guy who had money, right? Nicodemus, an influential leader, a centurion, a guy with influence in the Roman army. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that God invited and you accepted. So what makes a person accept this invitation? What makes a person accept the invitation to the great wedding feast? Let me suggest that, among other things, it begins with a sense of hunger. It begins with a sense of desire, a sense of need. Matthew, this is the gospel in which Jesus says, blessed are the hungry. If you are hungry for something, and that thing comes to you despite you not even asking for it, not deserving it, then there's a sense of wonder and there's a sense of gratitude, hunger, wonder, gratitude. This is the posture of of receptivity. This is the sort of posture that lends itself to a person accepting a gracious invitation. That's why the first guests rejected it. They just didn't want to come. Their own priorities, their own agendas, their own self-love shut them off from being able to hear good news of great joy. So if your, sense of, if your sense of hunger has been deadened, or if your sense of, of wonder at who God is toward you and his posture toward you has, has deadened, or if your sense of gratitude is just not there right now, and you know you should want this, and you should throw off everything to run after Christ, but you've just got no fire in your belly for it, listen, then ask God for help. He loves to help with this. Remember how gracious this king is. Remember this is the king with whom we have to deal. This is the son who meets us. Desire to desire it. Get in God's presence and look at your life. Like what things are, are numbing my heart so that I cannot hear the invitation of joy? Maybe it's something you're doing. Maybe it's something completely outside of your control that's numbing your heart. Whatever it is, You can bring it to the Lord and say, my soul, it is hungry and it is thirsty. Show me that I hunger and thirst for you and help me to hear again. It's a gracious invitation. Wonder at it. Stoke a desire for it and accept it. How do we participate in the great wedding feast? We start first by just accepting the wedding invitation. Accepting the invitation. And second, and this is... uh, This is my last point. Second, we put on the wedding garment. How do we participate in the feast? 
Second, we put on the wedding garment. This is verses 11 through 14, the part of the parable that's really scary, that is like so tempting to just, you know, cut off the reading at that point at verse 10. The wedding hall is filled with guests. The king comes in to see. It's this word for uh, examine, observe, right? Do a review. And he sees there's one guy there that's without a wedding garment. And he has no answer for it. And so the guy is bound. He's thrown outside to where things ain't good. And then Jesus says something that seems to threaten everything we've just said about just being an open, gracious invitation. Few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Right? There's this focus on one man, and I don't want to duck it. The warning that Jesus gives really is, I wrestle with this this week, just wanting to soften it. The, the warning really is razor sharp, and I dare not duck it. There are several things that can help us see what's going on here and what Jesus is trying to say. And really, the first thing is just um, noticing again why the person gets thrown out. I would say this is the main thing. This is the main thing to notice about this warning. Why does this guy get thrown out? It's because he has on no wedding garment. Notice, it's not because he is one of the bad ones. Jesus didn't tell the parable that way. He didn't say that the king came in and started looking at people and good and bad came in and he started to pick out all the bad ones and throw them out. That's exactly not what happened. The one guy who's toast did not have a wedding garment on. So of course, the crucial thing is to figure out what is this wedding garment? And how do I put it on? And do I have it on, right? If we, if we follow the whole stream, if we were like doing a series on Matthew and following the whole stream of how Matthew presents the kingdom of heaven, then this wedding garment makes a lot of sense. And we see that this wedding garment is all about participating. It's all about participating in the kingdom. The wedding garment really is a holy life. It's doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with your God. It really is the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and all the rest. And if there's any doubt, the passage we read from Revelation makes it totally clear. Revelation 19.8, the bride is granted fine linen to wear, and the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So how does this fit with everything we've said so far? Is this a bait and switch? Is it, is, is it an open invitation, but now that I'm here, I've got to earn it? And I've got to be good enough or else I'm getting tossed out. But again, notice the crucial detail. It's not a garment of dreary legalism. It is not a garment of anxious toil. Again, Jesus could have told it that way. The king came in and saw one of the slaves did not have his work clothes on. And he said, why don't you have your work clothes on and throws the slave out? That's not what he said. One of the guests did not have a wedding garment. The thing about a wedding garment is it, is it is the attire of joy. It is the garment of celebration. I've never met a bride who took no pleasure in the hours of getting ready for a wedding. Maybe there's one, but I've never met one. That's like part and parcel of the thing, right? My favorite picture ever of Callie is, is of her right before our wedding started. And she's putting in her earrings. And she's utterly beautiful. And there's joy all over her face and she's at peace. I love it. That's what it's like. That's what this wedding garment is. There was one guest at this feast who was there, but really wanted nothing to do with what was going on there, and did not want to be part and parcel of this feast. 
There's one without a wedding garment who curiously somehow accepted the invitation and showed up, but wanted, wanted nothing to do with what this feast was all about. Personal transformation. I want the, the fringe benefits, but the way I live my life, really I want, to, I want everything to center around me. And so I'm not really a part of the king's feast. The garment of my life is the works of the flesh, not the fruit of the spirit. And it's actually a really sh uh, strange state of mind that this person is in. So when the king comes in and says, friend, just notice the kindness again. That's not, God is not sarcastic and he's not vindictive. That's a real friend. How'd you get in here? Why did you come in, but you want, you want nothing to do with, with a kingdom of mercy and, and justice and love and holiness and love for God and love for, and love for each other? N.T. Wright is so good here. We want this parable to stop at inclusivity. We want to hear everyone's all right exactly as they are and that God loves us as we are and doesn't want us to change. All the outsiders came to Jesus, the blind, the sinners, the sick. His love reached them where they were. This is important. God's love reached them where they were, but his love refused to let them stay as they were. Love wants the best for the beloved. Their lives were transformed, healed, changed. God's kingdom is a kingdom in which love and justice and truth and mercy and holiness reign. That is the clothing you have to wear to the wedding. And if you refuse to put them on, you're saying you don't want to stay at the party. That's the reality. The blind man who came to Jesus did not stay blind. He was healed in that moment. When Zacchaeus came to Jesus, he met the expulsive power of a greater love. Zacchaeus used to love money, and it made him a thief, and it made him a swindler, and it broke him, and it was, and it was fracturing his community. But when he met Jesus, he didn't love money anymore. He loved Jesus, and he was no longer a thief. What's it look like? What's it look like to put on this wedding garment? Here's the good news. If I can just say it again, probably can't say it enough. Putting on this wedding garment is not a dreary thing. It is just walking in the light of life. It's walking in step with the Spirit. Philippians 2.13 is perfect here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is just the joy of having God in your life, leading you, guiding you, healing you, healing the wounds of your sin, healing the wounds of, of, of others sinning against you, healing the wounds of a community. It's throwing off all the old dead ways of thinking and acting and putting on the new, stepping into new life, out of the rags and into the wedding garment. Putting on the wedding garment is experiencing freedom over time. It's getting clean. It's getting free from all of our self-centeredness with all the anxiety that comes with that and all the hatred that comes with that and all the bitterness and the loneliness. It's being freed from the dark forces that enslave and being transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. This parable is a warning about that last banquet. Take it seriously, but not in a miserable, self anxious self-effort. Open yourself to God. Right? This is all of those stay awake, be sober warnings that are in the New Testament. Don't let the deceitfulness of sin deaden you to, to God's still small voice, leading you into life. And when you fail every day, 
I've, man, I, I completely screwed it up yesterday. This is Wilson talking right now. So I was just tired and I was a jerk all day, like 18 straight hours. I don't know why, just I don't, old life clinging to you, right? When you mess up every single day, don't give up, get clean. You don't have to go all the way to a far country and eat pig slop every single time before you come to your senses, right? You can get to the back gate and come to your senses and realize, wait, where am I going right now? And turn around. You already know that the Father's arms are wide open and that he will run to you. Accept the wedding invitation and put on the wedding garment. And I'll leave you with the words of Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great what? Joy. Let's pray.